This is Michael Mankins, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Michael Mankins. I'm a partner with Bain & Company, uh, which is a management consulting firm that's uh, global at this point. I happen to work out of our San Francisco office and have uh, am a leader in the firm organization uh, practice, uh, working across industries to help companies uh, improve their organizational effectiveness. And the, uh, the occasion that we're talking is also the author uh, of a new book or co-author with a new book called Time, Talent, and Energy. Um, which I think is is really quite interesting because right off the bat you set up something that so I, I have to confess my background I'm a I'm an organizational psychologist and I felt like for the longest time we don't get enough uh, credit because business was always about financial capital right and always about managing uh, money managing accounts payable, accounts receivable, making sure we're getting enough, um, uh, high enough capitalization, all of those sort of things. And now it seems like we live in a world where uh, those things are fairly abundant, at least for most organizations. But what is the rare and precious resource now are those three things, time, talent, and energy. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, you and I come from a different space, actually. I'm a microeconomist uh, for the most part by trade. So I spent most of my uh, adult career uh, helping companies uh, be more disciplined and more rigorous with respect to the way they uh, allocate scarce resources. And uh, as you've indicated, for most of our adult lives, that's been financial capital. Um, but today, uh, financial capital is super abundant uh, and relatively, by certainly by historical standards, extremely cheap. Um, so it's hard for uh, myself as a microeconomist, as a strategy consultant, uh, uh, as a business advisor, to imagine that uh, a company's ability to uh, 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 bring uh, rigor to the allocation of a readily abundant and almost free resource would any would be the secret to competitive advantage going forward, uh, and we just fundamentally don't believe that. Uh, but what we do see across our client base and we believe is uh, common across the companies that we researched is that what the true shortage is, is good ideas. Uh, and uh, good ideas, of course, don't just materialize. Um, they're the result of people, uh, people that have the skills and capabilities and ingenuity uh, 
to uh, that to bring to their work that can collaborate effectively and productively uh, with coworkers, uh, and that actually bring um, creativity uh, and discretionary energy with them to work every day. Uh, and that's what led us to conclude that the truly scarce resources that you indicated are time, talent, and energy of an organization's workforce, uh, and uh, the new ideas and that the, the, those workers and people uh, uh, develop and execute every single day. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to take them both, uh, or take them all three, sort of in turn. But I think the one that, uh, the at least that I resonate with, and that most of our listeners will resonate with, is this t- is this time approach, right? Because I mean, it's it, we sort of have this love hate relationship with email, for example. We uh, we say that most of uh, meetings are a waste of time. It's sort of like we we it's it's almost like uh, it's almost like the American diet, right? We know there's a problem, but we're not changing. We're not doing the things to actually manage that time, like it is a scarce resource. We're just continuing to sort of uh, assume it will always be readily available, and then also burden other people. Exactly, and the analogy used, I think, is particularly fitting. Uh, so we, there's a lot out there on take back your calendar, uh, you know, manage your inbox. But as an individual, there's very little you can do. Um, even if you uh, do, in fact, uh, follow the habits of highly effective individuals or whatever, you pick the book. Um, if those habits run counter to the way the organization actually gets work done, you really don't have much of a choice. You have to uh, sort of dive in and hope you can get to the other side effectively. Um, So we take an organizational perspective at even the issues of uh, excess uh, e-communication, meetings, IMs, uh, chatter, uh, you name it, what has become known in the popular press as sort of collaboration overload. Uh, Because we think collaboration overload is a symptom um, it's not actually a root cause. Um, and, uh, and thus you treat the cause or the actual underlying organizational pathology, uh, it's really uh, very, very difficult to actually see any Im- lasting impact on uh, the symptoms, which is essentially excess emails and, and uh, excessive time being dedicated to unproductive uh, uh, and uh, pointless meetings. So, I mean, I mean, I cer- certainly there's a few things like, uh, I, I don't know, not actually feeling the pressure to reply all to every uh, or email or to respond to every email, et cetera, that you can do individually. But if I hear you right, this really is something that has to kind of be a top-down intervention in order to get past the symptoms and actually target the cause. Yeah, exactly. So if we talk, there's essentially two primary uh, organizational maladies that lead to uh, what we call unaccess- uh, unproductive and unhealthy collaboration. Uh, and that's uh, first, uh, and I think foremost, actually, uh, organizational complexity and process complexity. Uh, and what we mean by that is as companies grow, um, they naturally add more dimensions to their organizations. You can think of a single product company adding new products, a, a company that only serves one customer group starting to expand and only selling men's clothing, starting to sell women's clothing, uh, companies that expanded to new geographies. Uh, but there's a natural tendency to duplicate uh, interactions every time you expand uh, when you may not need to. Uh, 
So uh, what, uh, and if you do duplicate those uh, interactions, you'll see that the growth in the interactions actually expands geometrically with every new product you add, every new customer group, um, every new geography you enter. Uh, we refer to those sort of academically as sort of decision nodes, the number of people or interactions that need to take place for a company to make and execute decisions. Uh, unless you um, actively manage down and deactivate <laughs> nodes or don't create them in the first place, um, it's, it's really hard to manage down um, the number of emails and meetings that occur as a result of that because obviously meetings and uh, email don't just happen. They're the reflection of people trying to get things done within the confines of uh, certain processes, procedures, structures, and cultural norms. Um, so simplifying the organization comes first. But uh, what's more troubling is the secondary cause, which I, I, I think is actually more common today, which is uh, a culture of uh, collaboration for collaboration's sake, uh, for lack of a better expression, where the number of meetings you're invited to becomes sort of a status symbol uh, that, oh, I must be important because my day is so clogged with meetings um, that people want my contribution to everything. Or they, they become a symptom of laziness on the part of leaders. It used to be incumbent on leaders to communicate what happened in meetings to subordinates that could not or should not attend. Uh, well, what's become the norm today is rather than do that, leaders just say, let's just invite everybody. Uh, to every meeting, and uh, you take that to its logical extreme, and you get what we've experienced over the last 15 years, which is a 7 to 8% growth in the amount of time organizations dedicate to meetings, both because the number of meetings proliferates, the length of meetings goes on, and most important of all, number of attendees per meeting goes up. So unless you break the back of a culture that says that collaboration for collaboration's sake is an end in and of itself, um, you'll uh, never actually reduce the symptoms of excess and unhealthy collaboration, which is typically emails and meeting time. Now, so you said something really interesting there, too, about the, the sort of connection between feeling you are important because you're in lots of meetings. Do you, do you think to some extent, I mean, that's, that's part of a larger sort of trend we have where we, we brag about our busyness as if it's, it you know, automatically equates to our productiveness, right? Like it seems like even if you're not in a leadership position or a power position, it seems like everybody these days wants to brag about how busy they are. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, it's... Uh surprising to me um, uh, people can confuse busyness with uh, time consumed so back when i started in the wonderful world of work which is a long time ago um, meetings were hard to set up right you, you ask somebody to set up a meeting between five people they gave you this look of dread because they knew they had to coordinate with all of the assistants for these people they had to pick a time, a place, uh, hope that it uh, fit on people's calendars, et cetera. Um, today, that's all costless. Um, you can set up a meeting just by going into your, your respect, whether it's Outlook or whatever your calendaring program is, and just plop one down. And inviting the incremental person to a meeting would cost you nothing. So 
what uh, people have confused is that I am busy every moment of the day, therefore I must be working hard, I must be productive. And uh, that's the disconnect that we have to break. Uh, because, you know, our research, as you know, indicates that most companies lose about a quarter of their productive output, more than a day, a business day a week, to what we call organizational drag, which is just the bureaucracies, processes, procedures uh, that consume time, uh, but don't actually lend themselves to productive output. Okay, so just for tracking, if I'm understanding everything right, Outlook really did ruin the world of work. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm kidding, well, but no, these, these tools making it easier to collaborate led to inevitably to more collaboration. Yeah, we call it the dark side of Metcalf's law, right? So Metcalf um, is now a professor of uh, entrepreneurial studies at the University of Texas, but he was famous for um, inventing the Ethernet and founding 3Com, a tech guy who basically said that the value of a network expands geometrically with the number of nodes in that network. Think fax machines. Two, one fax machine's useless. You add another one and you can communicate. You add another one for three fax machines, you actually increase the number of communications geometrically. You add four, et cetera, et cetera. What Metcalf probably knew but never told us was that there's a dark side to that. And that's that is the cost of one to one and one to many uh, communication decline the number of those communication and the number of those interactions increases exponentially. Um, and so meetings, I think, are probably the easiest. It used to be highly costly uh, to set up a meeting. Um, now, today, it's essentially free. That the, the incremental cost of adding a participant or adding an hour uh, to a meeting is essentially zero. Uh, and uh, the result has been that the number of hours dedicated uh, to meetings in organizations has grown by about seven or eight percent since 2008. And that was just the first year that we started gathering statistics on this. But you draw a straight line there uh, and you can easily see where uh, the 11 hours that the average uh, frontline supervisor today spends in meetings is going to grow to 15 to 20, um, et cetera. Uh, and it leads to the statement that I had a client tell me the other day, which I can completely relate to, and I suspect your listeners will too, and that's that the most productive meetings at uh, this particular company are on Saturday mornings at 7.30. Uh, nobody wants to be there. Um, so it's not one minute longer than it needs to be. Um, and it doesn't involve one individual more than is needed in order to either make the decisions that are necessary in order for that, that meeting to accomplish what it needs to be. Uh, and if more companies could treat every meeting as though it was occurring at 7.30 in the morning, let's say 6.30 in the morning to make a particularly uh, grading uh, on Saturday, uh, you wouldn't have the same proliferation of uh, uh, meetings, time in meetings, and attendees at meetings that we've seen over the last decade. Mm, I, I mean, I like that idea. There, there was another in the book that I liked um, as well. It was this idea of I, th I think it was I think it was Ford that started instituting this, but the idea of having a sort of a fixed time budget. So here's the number of hours in a given week or a given month that are reserved to meetings, and if you're going to schedule another one, you need to remove some other meeting because of this time budget. 
Yeah, exactly. So it, it was, in fact, board. But the, the discipline here is that you may not know whether or not the time that you're spending in meetings today is too much, um, but it's highly likely to be too little. Uh, and so Alan Mulally, uh, when he took uh, became CEO at Ford, uh, basically observed that Ford had what was called meetings week, which was one week a month. The top 35 executives from all over the world flew to Dearborn for a week of meetings. So it was basically, you know, math's pretty easy. One twelfth of uh, these executives' time was actually dedicated to this activity. Um, well, Alan came from Boeing. He didn't come from Ford. So uh, he, he wasn't trying to make a judgment call on whether that was too much time. All he said is, I don't want to dedicate any more time. Uh, so for every new meeting that we establish that includes any of these executives, you have to tell me what meeting you're going to eliminate. We're going to fund all new meetings out of existing meetings. Uh, and that's a discipline that any company can pursue. Um, and uh, over time, what you'll see is that you'll say, well, there's actually a lot of time we can liberate, even if we're not trying to fund new meetings, uh, in order to uh, reduce the organizational drag that's created by certain activities. Uh, so yeah, a fixed time budget is one. Uh, the other that I think almost any company could pursue if they are serious about actually reducing unproductive or unhealthy collaboration is providing uh, executives with uh, report, information essentially on what is the organizational load that they're putting on their teams as a result of the meetings that they schedule, the emails that they send, the IM uh, and Slack, whatever you choose the, pro the crowdsourcing program uh, that they uh, actually activate amongst their teams. If you provide that information along with what the typical executive does at your level or uh, the typical executive in your function, you'll see self-policing occur, uh, that people will naturally try to reduce the load that they put on their teams. And the first thing they'll do is they'll stop, they'll reduce the number of people they copy on emails um, because um, reply all, uh, our research suggests uh, basically it costs about 3% of a company's productive activity is consumed by reply all. Uh, and uh, they reduce the number of people they invite to meetings, uh, reducing it to the number that are essential uh, in order to make that meeting productive, similar to the 6.30 in the morning on Saturday discipline. Uh, and those two things combined can typically reduce the amount of load that executives are putting on their teams by anywhere from 10 to 15 percent. And so without any sort of mandate, just by providing information, you can ultimately uh, change behavior uh, within an existing structure or existing culture. If you can change the structure and the culture as well, that's uh, that's how you're actually going to liberate most of the unproductive time. Uh, that is a, a source of drag in organizations. Hmm. So, you know, I, I like this just to go back to our analogy before about sort of diet, right? And not knowing just how much this is essentially encouraging people to, to keep a food journal or a time journal, right? You, you don't actually know how many calories you're eating throughout the day, uh, but just the mere act of measuring it in sort of encourages people to, you know, to dramatically reduce it in the same way, encouraging people to monitor how their time is being spent 
encourages people to actually sort of reduce it, especially managers, et cetera. I really like this idea. Yeah, it's, it's the perfect analogy, by the way. If you add into it um, sort of the notion of keeping an exercise journal as well, right? There's a lot of reasons why uh, people are overweight. They, they eat too much. They don't exercise enough. Um, they um, potentially have a genetic predisposition to being overweight, uh, et cetera. All of those contribute to um, obesity. Uh, what we've done through sort of collaboration tools and things like that is essentially allowed fat people, um, myself included, uh, to just to just loosen our belts uh, and, and, and think that that's somehow going to deal with uh, the underlying issue of being obese. Uh, and um, so what you really need to do is understand why is it that organizations are struggling with organizational drag and sometimes just the sheer tracking can um, modify behavior and, and uh, reduce calorie intake, increase exercise, uh, et cetera, to deal with some of the uh, symptoms of uh, uh, what would be the, the equivalent of organizational obesity. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, awareness becomes a, a hugely powerful tool. And, and I think it's the same thing as transition a bit uh, to this talent piece. I think it's the same thing in that. I mean, we all know the sort of the war for talent idea, this idea that there is, uh, you know, there's a difference between A players, B players and C players. I do think in your research really convinced me there's a lack of awareness of just how big that difference is and thereby how, the importance of figuring out who are your star players. Yeah, you know, it, it was, it was surprising to us. Um, so Eric Garden and I uh, wrote the book together. Eric's a partner in our Chicago office and leads our org practice. But uh, we had, had the hypothesis that it must be that the best performing companies just have better people. You know, they have more A players as a percentage of their workforce um, than the rest. It actually turns out that that's not the case, uh, at least when you're comparing the average of the best performers, which is the top quartile in the sample of our research, which is about around 300 and some companies globally, uh, versus the rest, which was the average of the remaining three quartiles, they have essentially the same mix of A talent. Uh, about one in seven uh, employees is considered a star, um, What uh, meaning they have both high performance and high potential. The uh, biggest difference then, uh, what explains the big difference in productivity isn't the mix of talent. It's actually how that talent is deployed, uh, teamed, and led. Uh, that's so dramatically different. Uh, and I'll just pick on teaming. Uh, on teaming, uh, we found that uh, the best performing companies uh, were four times more likely to create what we call assault teams teams comprised of all A players uh, when they're trying to tackle a mission-critical initiative, four times more likely uh, to create an assault team. The, the rest were seven times more likely to team based on who's available. Hmm. Uh, and I know that seems, seems somewhat mundane, but uh, you know, if you ask somebody, this is an absolutely critical initiative. Uh, for our company it has to be done well, it has to be done quickly, and it has to be done right. Uh, and you said to an executive, so let's just put on who's ever available. 
they would naturally say, no, no, that doesn't make any sense. Let's not do that. But the, the reality is that companies don't spend enough time figuring out what are the truly mission critical uh, initiatives. And if for those few select efforts, uh, what are what is the team that we should put against them? Uh, they uh, approach it in a, a much too egalitarian uh, fashion, and that produces average performance. Uh, and uh, so it's teaming that matters. Um, the other big difference is in deployments. Uh, and uh, we make this contrast in the book, uh, which is certainly supported in research and experience, that most companies pursue what we call uh, an unintentionally egalitarian model with respect to the way they deploy talent, which means that basically one in seven employees in almost every single function and, and role is A, is an A player, the remaining six sevenths is not. Uh, what we found is the best though, pr uh, pursue a model that's very different. It's intentionally non-egalitarian. Uh, in the way they deploy talent. So uh, for the few select uh, business critical roles, so think in retail, uh, for example, at The Gap, when Mickey Drexler uh, was uh, the CEO of The Gap and The Gap had its uh, wonder years, uh, merchandising was considered a business critical role. Uh, well, at almost every individual that was a merchandiser at The Gap was an A player. 95% of business critical roles are, uh, are staffed with A players, uh, which means that you have less than, uh, that, less than one in seven stars players to distribute across the rest of the roles. Uh, but you're concentrating your difference makers, what we call in the book, in an area where they can make their biggest difference. Uh, and uh, that produces uh, a dramatic dramatic change in productivity and performance. Hmm. So to some extent too, I think one of the weird uh, misconceptions, this is a bit of a, of a transition, but I just think it's interesting, is you know, it, in order to do that, we have to look at um, the importance of team performance. And we have this weird tendency, I feel like, when it comes to star players, high performers, high potential, or even just, even just people who are high performers, we tend to associate so much of that as the individual and then almost feel like, I mean, to some extent, I wonder if maybe it's okay if it's only one in seven because we got the one guy or girl who's the high performer and then we just fill out the team with anybody else that helps. And as long as we can get the ball to that person, right? As long as we can get the ball to LeBron James, everything's going to be great. And we just ignore the role of that rest of the team, even though so much of performance these days is actually a function of the whole team, not the individual. Yeah. So... Uh, I'll take a different, a different, different analogy. I, I don't even think it's that. <clears throat> and uh, the uh, I'm going to take us to the world of NASCAR. Uh, and if you look at Kyle Busch, so back in about four years ago, Kyle Busch's pit crew was considered to be the best in NASCAR. Uh, and a pit crew, uh, for those listeners who don't follow NASCAR, uh, basically is responsible for getting a car in and out of a pit as fast as possible. Uh, a pit involves 77 different separate maneuvers, including changing all four wheels, refilling the gas, all that sort of thing. Uh, so the car leaves uh, the pit, uh, hopefully as quickly as possible. Uh, Kyle Busch's um, pit crew, uh, and again, this is back in 2013, 
uh, so almost five years ago, but uh, the data said that their pit crew could actually pursue, perform all 77 maneuvers in 12.12 seconds, so 12.12 seconds. Um, you take one of Kyle Busch's pit crew members out and you substitute in a B player, that draw, that, that everybody else is the same, that time jumps to 24 seconds. You take two out, it jumps to 48. You can see the math. It's basically a geometric. Yeah. The more, uh, the higher the percentage of um, A players on a team um, that collaborate effectively together, um, the higher the performance. You substitute more B players in, you get lower performance, and it's a geometric curve downward. Um, the point that you raise, which is a very, very important one, is that we have all grown up in a culture where we assume performance is individual, uh, and virtually no performance in business today is. Uh, almost everything is done on teams. And so there needs to be a change in mindset, uh, at least certainly around the mix of uh, performance rewards um, that are tied to individual versus team performance, if not an altogether re-emphasis on um, the performance of teams versus the performance of individuals. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that mindset shift combined with more, more better and more uh, conscious uh, use of information on your star players and how you have them deployed uh, can produce dramatically different levels of productivity and performance, uh, at least according to our research. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely stunning, that level. And yet, you know, I mean, it, it goes back to even there's all sorts of organizational things we have to change with compensation, for example. I mean, how much of compensation is so individual, even though team um, there's a, there's a lot, I, 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 what I find really interesting about all of this is that there is a lot that, that are symptoms that we think are the causes, you know, it, it used to be that we would think the compensation piece, that's, that's a problem, but there's this underlying symptom where the assumptions about talent, the same thing with time, right? You, you really sort of encourage me to look at this idea. Like the problem isn't email, the problem isn't meetings. Those are underlying symptoms of this kind of larger problem. I mean, we're talking about major surgery here to really take advantage of reducing organizational drag. Yeah, that's right. Although the difference is pretty dramatic, right? So uh, I said earlier, um, our research says the average company loses about a quarter of its productive uh, capacity of organizational drag. The best lose less than half of that. Doesn't mean they don't lose, they don't lose some to organizational drag. But the difference between losing a full business day or more uh, to organizational drag in less than four hours to organizational drag out of the week uh, is a pretty dramatic difference, uh, assuming that all of that time goes to productive activity. Uh, and uh, so I, I think resolving organizational drag and then making up for more of it through talent, uh, the way you actually deploy team and lead talent can have a huge impact on uh, productivity. And that's before we even talk about energy uh, uh, and how you unleash the discretionary energy of the workers, uh, that can, the folks that come to work every day. Uh, and the combination of the three makes a big difference in productivity, uh, as uh, we noted. The headline is we'll probably talk about is, uh, we found the best performing companies are 40% more productive than the rest. Uh, which is equivalent to saying that the best companies accomplish 
uh, as much by about 10 o'clock in the morning on Thursday as the rest do all week. <laughs> you know, and continue to work, right? They continue to serve customers. They continue to innovate. They continue to bring uh, ingenious new processes to the work with the workplace every day. So they're continuing to work, and that compounds every every year to produce these dramatic differences in profitability and growth. Um, and so the size of the prize here is very, very large, but you're right. It's major surgery. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, uh, calorie counting. It's more like liposuction. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, I, I, I find that interesting. The, the Wednesday by 10 AM thing. Cause if you, I think if you do the math, that means that by Monday afternoon of the following week, you've been lapped, right? That the best performing companies have essentially lapped you in performance and gained an extra, extra week yeah. yeah exactly you've been lapsed by tuesday morning assuming how depending upon how much time folks would dedicate over the weekend right yeah uh, yeah totally yeah those seven thirty a.m saturday morning meetings are probably you know you're lapped by then <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> probably Although, or you may not need to have them because uh, most likely you don't need to have them because uh, you can actually get your work done during the after during uh, regular business hours yeah. So, so there's a lot, there's a lot more to cover in the book. We didn't even tap into to energy as you hinted at. I think we're going to, I'm going to leave that for folks to get the book because it's good stuff. Um, but you've already made my brain hurt a couple different times. And I think our listeners have too on combating a lot of these faulty assumptions. I do have one kind of personal question for you um, related to the concepts of the book, which is as you've been doing this research and some of it I know has dripped out over time. I've seen a couple of your articles in HBR over the past few years, et cetera. How has the way that you've approached your own work changed as a result of some of these discoveries? It's a pretty significant way. So, um, and um, uh, I think my colleagues would uh, acknowledge this. So, uh, initially, I have been obsessed with time in particular for quite some time. Uh, and uh, about two years ago, I decided, well, I'm going to start eating my own pudding. Um, and started not responding to emails that didn't actually require a response. Uh, and uh, which is a little bit countercultural at Bain. Uh, uh, and uh, I had a partner uh, in front of a large group of partners say, well, you didn't answer this email. And I said, well, I was saving you time. Uh, I said, you didn't ask for a response. If I sent a response to you and everyone else you copied on that email, you know, five people would have had to read my response that would have consumed time. And one of those five might have actually responded to my response. Uh, and that would have consumed even more time. So I was just conscious about your time. Hmm. Uh, I didn't want to waste your time. Uh, given that you didn't ask me for a response, you didn't need a response uh, in order for this to go. Um, and initially, I could tell uh, this particular partner at the time was bewildered. Uh, and then uh, he's, he, it was a he, sat there for a couple of minutes. He goes, you know, thank you. Uh, I had not thought about it that way. And I said, well, I've become, you know, I, I think we should start thinking about it that way because we all have 300 emails in our inbox every single day. And uh, at least uh, 60 of mine are things that I don't need to respond to. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to respond to those uh, anymore. Uh, and the other thing that I think individually has changed me a lot is I fundamentally believe that reply all is um, and uh, I won't say an evil, but uh, it basically costs a lot in terms of lost productivity. Uh, and so where possible, I try not to use reply all. 
uh, I will reply to the sender, uh, uh, or I will reply to the sender plus the person who's most relevant that needs to know what my response is. Uh, but I try to avoid reply all because um, uh, I think it tends to consume uh, more time than it actually produces benefits. So in emails, that's that's one. And then uh, I have changed the default setting, although this did not impact this particular meeting, that the default setting in my calendar is 30 minutes for a meeting, not an hour. And I think probably your listeners don't even know the default setting on most calendar programs is for meetings to be an hour. Um, and they don't have to be, yeah. They don't have to be. Just change it. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And, uh, so those are the two things that you might my, myself I've individually done, but keep in mind, I think this is an organizational issue. Uh, yeah. only so much I can do. Um, but, uh, I do personally believe that time is this one of our scarcest resources, uh, as well as talent and energy. Uh, and, um, I think it needs to be managed that way. Uh, and I try to do that myself. Yeah, no, I absolutely love it. So, so the book again, Time, Talent, and Energy, Overcome Organizational Drag and Unleash Your Team's Productive Power. Be able to do more work uh, in your company by Wednesday at 10 a.m. Then competitors, lap them by uh, Tuesday morning, depending on how, uh, of the following week, depending on how energetic you want to be. I highly encourage you um, to check out the book. Michael, we've got uh, five questions we ask at the end. We ask all guests sort of a lightning round of questions that I, I want to turn attention now from the book to you um, more than just your outlook settings, if that's all right. Sure, no problem. So the, the first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, listen more. Hmm. What's, uh, what's an ideal work day look like for you? We know what your, your default meeting schedule is, but what does an ideal uh, calendar and outlook day look like for you? Yeah, so I'm an early riser, uh, so uh, I do all of my exercise in the morning. So I wake up most mornings at 4.30. I watch, uh, I'm, I typically am in the central time or on the west coast, so I only I need to watch Morning Joe on MSNBC. Uh, work out for a couple of hours, go to the office and uh, have um, back in time to have dinner with my husband by 6. Hmm. What are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading, uh, I'm, I actually don't read very much if you really want to know. That's the, that's the uh, joke in my house. Um, I only write books, I don't read them. Uh, <laughs> typically, I'm really not reading anything right now, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm writing a lot, but I'm not reading very much. Huh. No pleasure reading. Huh. What do you believe that most people don't? Wow. Uh, I believe that, uh, uh, and this is tied to the book, which is probably too dorky, but I, I believe that inspiration, uh, inspirational leadership can be taught and learned. Uh, it's not innate. Mm, I, no, I like that. And a, and a fundamental uh, belief that most listeners and the host of Radio for Leader all share. So I love it. Um, though I, I definitely agree with you. All of us still seem like we're in the minority. Um, it brings us to our final question. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Uh, I think it's someone who can engender followers. Uh, uh, I know that's, that's uh, the, the classic, but uh, I think it's true that uh, uh, one's not a leader by the position that they hold. Uh, one's uh, a leader typically because of one of three characteristics, the vision that they have, the humility that they uh, hold in their heart or the selflessness with which they uh, 
uh, take to the way they manage uh, tasks with their teams. Uh, but if at the end of the day, you can't engender followers, you're not a leader. I love it. Great, great answer. I mean, simplistic, but I love the the set of three things there to to do to to accomplish that. And while you're also looking at other three things, uh, if you're listening, check out Time, Talent, and Energy, the three scarce resources that you're probably letting uh, yourself, but also others um, waste away. And there's a lot of changes we need to make to really harness that, reduce organizational drag, increase productivity. So check it out, Time, Talent, and Energy. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you, David. 